Rachel the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the Gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the Gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we gather together this morning and open up Your Word, I think of Peter and when he proclaimed the Word to Cornelius and his household and we're told in Acts that while he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. And the believers of the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Father, I love that image of the Holy Spirit falling. And I want to ask that right now You would send the Holy Spirit and that He would fall upon us so that our lives would be radically transformed because of Your Word. We pray this for the joy of Your people and the glory of Your name. In Christ's name, Amen. Can you see it? Three years ago, I had the privilege of taking a class with R.C. Sproul on the doctrine of justification. Here we go again. Another one of those big theological terms. Justification. Five syllables. Um, the best way to illustrate justification, I think, is uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul says, referring to Jesus, He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So when we admit that we're sinners, when we confess our sins, it's as though Jesus says, I'll take your sin. He nails it to the cross. And in return, He gives us His righteousness so that when God looks at us, it's as though we have never sinned. And I want to be real clear if this is new to you. This is what we call the Gospel. If you're a sinner and you need forgiveness, you need to be saved, you want to have the hope of heaven, I want to be very clear, that happens by simply asking for forgiveness, putting your faith in Christ. And when that happens, your sin is taken away. He gives you His righteousness and you are transformed. It's through faith alone. It has nothing to do with any works that you do. The works will come after your conversion. So that's justification. Now, in that class on 
justification that I took with my uh, very good and personal friend, R.C. Sproul. <laughs> I can say that now since I took a class with him and talked to him a couple times. I don't know if he considers me a close friend. but <laughs> I consider him a very close and personal friend. Um, he began that class by asking the 12 students in that class to define the gospel. And he just went right around the table. We were in a circle and just one by one, he said in two minutes or less, I, I want you to define the gospel. And we just went around the room. Imagine the pressure. R.C. Sproul's listening. I better, I better be very clear, accurate, biblical, or I'm, I'm in trouble. I'll never get over this. <laughs> so one by one, uh, with fear and trembling, um, we did give a definition of the gospel. And when we finished, he said that we did very well as a class. Um, he was actually quite impressed. Um, and he said in the past, uh, he and Vesta, his wife, who uh, was with him for many of his doctoral classes, uh, said that in the past, they had been very disappointed by definitions of the Gospel that they had heard. Now, think about that for a moment. We're not talking about uneducated laymen. Uh, we're talking about pastors in full-time ministry who are taking a doctoral level class and they're asked to explain the Gospel and they're getting a poor grade. You can never be too clear when it comes to the Gospel. I remember the first time I, I said that to my wife. Um, we, we were at the health club and we were talking to some gentleman there. I've never seen him before. I uh, haven't seen him since. And I don't know how we got on this, but we were talking about church. And he was talking about different churches that he had been to. Uh, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church. And he was talking about how important it was for kids to be in church because they need good moral teaching. They need to learn values. They need to learn morals. And I was like, God is not in that. Christ is not in that. No mention of the Gospel. No mention of a need for grace. And I remember saying to Michelle, you can never be too clear when it comes to the Gospel. Now, this is serious for at least two reasons. Uh, the first reason should be obvious, um, apart from a clear understanding of the Gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ, people are going to perish. This is the only message of salvation that there is. And if we're not clear on this, people are going to perish. second reason why this is so serious is because our Christian lives will be a mess if we stray from the Gospel of grace. Even as Christians, if we stray from the Gospel of grace, that's going to affect our Christian lives. And that actually is Paul's concern to the Galatians. Look ahead to Galatians 3, if you will. Beginning at verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Can you stop right there for a moment? I can ask you that question. 
Christian? Did you receive the Holy Spirit because of faith in Jesus Christ or because you were good Christians who obeyed the law? Which, which was it? Faith or obeying the law? That's what Paul is asking these believers here. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me pause here as well. Are you so foolish? You began by faith and the power of the Spirit. Are you now trying to do it all on your own? Have you traded faith alone for sola bootstrapsa? The Reformation contract. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and try really hard. You know what? Christians do it all the time. Christians do it all the time. They begin by faith, but then somewhere along the way, they think, now i got to work really hard. i got to try harder. Maybe if I get up earlier. Maybe if I read more. Maybe if I pray more. Maybe if I go to church more. Maybe if I give more. Maybe if I serve more. Maybe if I just try harder and harder and harder. Maybe then I'll live the Christian life like I'm called to live. I wonder how many Christians do that. I'm going to give you the answer. I think many Christians do that. He goes on. He says, Did you suffer so many things in vain if it was indeed in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Has God worked in your life? Has He answered prayers? Has He done miraculous things because of faith or because you're a really good, hard-working Christian? Which is it? He asked asked the Galatians, why did God work miracles in your midst? Because you work really, really hard or because of faith? And the answer is obvious. It's because of faith. And it is so easy to slip into legalism. And here I'm defining legalism as not living the Christian life by faith, but living by working really, really hard so that God will love you and accept you and answer your prayers and bless your life. We need to understand that God works through faith. And this is important because we need God to intervene. You need God to intervene. I bet I could go right down this, these rows and ask each one of you, do you need God to intervene? And you, and you would say yes. You would say, I need God to intervene or I'm never going to get over this depression. If God doesn't intervene, I'm going to die depressed. I need God to intervene because I have a prodigal son or daughter and he or she or they are breaking my heart and I need God to intervene. I'm desperate for God to intervene. If God doesn't intervene, my marriage is going to continue to languish and we're just going to tolerate one another. I need God to intervene or we're going to collapse financially. I need God to intervene or this health situation is just going to do me in. I need God to intervene or I'll never smile again. I'll never experience the joy of the Lord. We need God to intervene. And the question is, what is necessary for God to intervene? And there's really just two basic options. Faith, works of the law. Faith or works of the law. And this is so important so that we understand it's faith. We need to look to God. We, we need to trust Him. 
And I really do wonder how many of you think, i got to work harder, i got to work harder. You'll just end up killing yourself. And you'll get more depressed. And you'll just spiral down. It's grace. It's faith. That's how we began the Christian life. That's how we continue on in the Christian life. That's how we will end in the Christian life. We get the Gospel wrong. We not only get our salvation wrong, we get our entire Christian life wrong. And again, I I could be wrong, but perhaps some of you have lost the vibrant joy of your salvation because you're working really, really hard and it's not having a good effect on you. Paul is fighting for the Gospel, the purity of the Gospel by grace. And the interesting thing is he's doing it for Christians. He's doing it for Galatians who are Christians. And in our passage, he says, I'm doing it for you. Christians need to get the Gospel right. So this is why he's going to Jerusalem so that he can meet with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem who are head of the church at this time so that they can validate His Gospel so that it's not undermined by the Judaizers who are coming in saying, faith is nice, grace is nice, but you guys need to work hard as well. You need to obey the law. Just think of how crushing that is. How much obedience? If you're standing before God is on obedience, even a little bit, it's just it's, it's a weight too much to bear. So Paul's going up to Galatians, and what I want to do is just work through this passage and then consider a number of implications. And there are many, but um, we'll see how many we can get to. So he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. He's intentionally taking Titus. Who's Titus? Titus is an uncircumcised. Greek who has become a Christian. And here's, here's what Paul's doing. He, here's the picture. He's going up to Jerusalem. He's bringing Barnabas. And he's intentionally bringing Titus. And he's going to present Titus to the leaders there. And he's going to say, look at my good friend Titus, my brother in the faith. He's an uncircumcised Gentile. He's now part of the body of Christ. What do you think? <laughs> What do you think? Should we accept him? Should we give him a big hug? Should we welcome him? And the test is, will he be welcomed or will they say, whoa, whoa, uncircumcised, unclean. Un- We've we got to take care of that. We've got to fix that. So he brings Titus along. Uh, he's a test of whether or not they will accept him. Now remember, the Judaizers, they were saying, you have to be circumcised. Turn it, Turn ahead to five. Galatians 5.1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm them and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You will be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. This is so important. Paul says, if you're going to accept circumcision, if you're going to accept one law, guess what? You have to accept them all. And if you do that, you're severed from Christ. You're cut off from grace. It's all or nothing. 
law or grace. It can't be a mixture of both. It's Christ or nothing. So this is a very, a very serious matter. He goes on and he says, I went up because of a revelation. Uh, a revelation. That's interesting. Let me stop right here. The revelation is probably a reference to Acts 11, 27 and following. Acts 11, 27 and following read, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So most likely that's that's the revelation God's revealed. There's going to be a famine. So Paul said we've got to take up a collection. And now he's going up to Jerusalem and he's bringing the financial collection to bring relief to those who are struggling in Judea because of this famine. Um, now he also mentions this revelation so people don't get the impression um, that the apostles and the leaders uh, called him to come to Jerusalem. Um, he doesn't want them to get the impression I went up to Jerusalem because they wanted me to come uh, because they were questioning me. We don't know about that Apostle Paul. We don't know about that Gospel he's preaching. Um, you know, Paul doesn't want them to think you know, that it's kind of like the Apostles and uh, James were like the principal and you know, Paul was a bad student. He got in trouble and he's being called to the principal's office to explain his behavior. Um, that's not what it is at all. He's going up because of a revelation. Uh, it had nothing to do with the leaders of the church. And then he says that he set before them the gospel that he proclaimed to the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now here we need to be real clear because you could get the impression that Paul is thinking, boy, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I, maybe I didn't preach the right gospel. I better present it to them so that they say, yeah, that's the right gospel. And Paul can go, Phew. Okay, good. I'm glad I got it right. I wanted to make sure I, I got it right. That's, that's not what he means by running in vain or had run in vain. What he means is he presented the Gospel so that they could say we are all in agreement. Yes, that is the Gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to obey the law. It's, it's faith alone. And he's presenting that Gospel so that the Judaizers who followed him around every city that he went so that they could finally be silenced. He's fearful that he had run in vain because what would happen is, what was happening at Galatians, this was very common, he would go in, he would preach the Gospel, he would go on to another city, and then the Judaizers would come in and say, what did Paul preach? Faith alone in Jesus. That's, that's okay, but that's not good enough. You have to obey the law as well. And Paul's saying, I've run in vain because I go and I preach and these Judaizers come in behind me and they undo everything that I've done. And he's saying to the leaders in Jerusalem, we've got to stop these guys. We have to stop them. So, so that's the concern there. And then he says, after he presented the Gospel, verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So here's why Titus is important. So he says, you know what? They didn't force Titus to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. 
It was not necessary for his salvation. His justification was not necessary for him to be accepted. He goes on and he says, Yet, because of false brothers, probably these Judaizers, notice they're false brothers, they're not true brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. They didn't like the freedom the Christians had. They wanted to enslave them. And we'll come back to that a little later. He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul said, we stood our ground because we're preserving the truth of the Gospel. We can have different views on baptism and eschatology, gifts of the Spirit, but, but when it comes to the Gospel, no, 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 we're, we're not budging at all. No. We, ha- we have to stand firm. And that's exactly what he did. And then he goes on and he says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. By the way, let me just stop here for a moment. He's referring to the apostles and James, uh, the Lord's half-brother. Uh, this is not James, the son of John. He's already been executed as a martyr by this time. But he's saying those who were influential, later they're called the pillars of the church because of their status. Um, he says, it doesn't make any difference to me. He's not belittling them. That's not what he's doing here. But the Judaizers were saying, the twelve, James, they're true apostles, they're true followers, not that Paul guy. He, he's got it wrong. So he's saying what they were, it doesn't make any difference to me. God doesn't show any partiality. He accepts me just as much as He does them. He says, they added nothing to me. I presented the Gospel. They accepted it. They didn't say that Titus had to be circumcised. They didn't add anything to my Gospel. They accepted it. They didn't change it. They didn't alter it at all. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the Gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the Gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter's other name, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So he presents all this. They didn't add the Gospel. They saw that God's grace was upon Paul and his ministry and they extended their right hand of fellowship. Now, that, that's a very important handshake, okay? Um, this, this is like the old days when you, you know, maybe you wanted to hire someone, uh, I don't know, add an addition onto your house, and, you know, and they said, okay, this is going to cost $50,000, and you went through it, and you said you agree to that, and you said, okay, let's shake on it. Okay, and you shake on it, okay, you'll do it for $50,000, you know, and you say, that'll never happen today, right? <laughs> Anything over five bucks needs more than a handshake these days. Uh, but the right hand of fellowship was very significant. It was kind of legal, if you will. And it showed that there was gospel unity. The quote-unquote pillars of the church, the apostles and the leaders, accepted Paul's gospel 
100% there was complete unity. Now, what's interesting is how it ends. And then verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Uh, Kind of strange. It almost seems like it's tacked on, you know. It's almost like they're walking out and it's like Peter yells to Paul, you know, by the way, don't forget about the poor. Okay, yeah, I just I care about the poor. It almost seems like it's added on. Um, in homiletics classes, when you learn how to preach, they say, make sure everything's unified. So, for example, if you're preaching on marriage, you know, you might have, you know, uh, the biblical principle of marriage, the struggles of marriage, the joys of marriage, and then you wouldn't have a, a fourth point that would be, now, two words about baptism. You know, you just, you, it, it, it's, it's got to flow. It, it's almost like we're talking about the gospel and the unity of the gospel. And then it's almost like, and a few words on the poor. It's like, it, it doesn't seem to fit. So I ask, how does this fit? I think it does fit. Um, remember the revelation? If Paul did go up, because there was a famine and he's taking care of the poor. This is what's happening. Gentile Christians who are quite wealthy are giving their money to Paul and Barnabas so that they can take the money and help their poor brothers in Jerusalem who are struggling because of the famine and they can help them out. And that mercy ministry, if you will, shows that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. So by helping one another out financially, what you're saying indirectly is we're all part of the body of Christ and we accept them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. It would be like if the Baptist church up the road had a, let's, let's say, a fire and it, and it burned down and they wanted to rebuild. And, and we would say, let's, let's do whatever we can to help them out so they can get back on their, on their feet. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We would help them. And that financial support would show that we hold to the same Gospel. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So this helping of the poor, I I really do believe, um, relates to Gospel unity. It's just a tangible way of showing Gospel unity. So that's what we have taking place. And it really preserved Paul's message and he was able to take this back to the other churches and they could continue to flourish. Now, what can we take away from this? There are, there are so many lessons here. Let me just draw your attention uh, to a few of them. Uh, first of all, the importance of freedom. I'm going to want to go back right to the middle. Um, Paul talks in verse 4 about these false brothers. They came in. They slipped in. You know, kind of... To spy out our freedom, you know, like coming in and saying, "Wow, you know, there's too much freedom in here." They want to make them slaves. Notice it's freedom versus slavery. The gospel of grace is a gospel of freedom. The gospel of works, however you put it, is slavery. Because who can obey all those commands for acceptance? And this freedom is a is a prominent theme in Galatians. Look at Galatians 5.1. We read it earlier. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free. Grace sets us free. And then look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom 
as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You free. You're free. Don't submit to the law. If you submit to the law, you're going to become slaves. You're going to be crushed under that yoke. And you're going to be miserable, depressed Christians. Who needs a church like that? We want people who are free, who are characterized by the joy of the Lord, the Spirit working in their midst. So one of the things the Gospel of grace does is it sets us free from religion. Religion. I put that in quotes. What's what is religion? Here I'm defining religion as not free from... We don't have to go to church. We don't have to go to Bible study. We don't have to pray. I, I hope you see that as, as a joy. Um, I hope you're, you say every Sunday morning, at least in, in your mind, if not out loud, yes, we get to go to church. We get to sing praises to God. Oh, maybe it'll even be a little louder this, this Sunday so we can just sing out and people won't be distracted by my singing off-key. I hope the message is a little longer. That was self-serving, but <laughs> can't wait to go and encourage God's people. Look forward to that. Look forward to going to Bible study on Wednesday. It's going to be great. I hope everybody makes it out. Right now, I'm going to pray that everybody makes it out and just go through the list. I hope that's a joy. No, religion, as I'm defining it here, is having to work for God to be pleased with us. We have to work to earn God's acceptance. We want God to love us. We want God to accept us. We need to understand that that's by God's grace. By faith alone. You know, I really do fear that too many Christians think if God's really going to love me, if He's really going to accept me, if He's really going to bless me, I really do have to do my part at least a little bit. Because this is just part of our culture, but we have to be careful because we'll never measure up. Some of you, you grew up in, in homes where you never got your parents' approval. You know, you, you got your report card. Imagine a kid getting his report card. Five A's, one C plus, and he's so excited. Ah, I did really well. Mom, Dad, look at my report card. And they look it over and Dad says, C plus, what, what happened here? Did you slack off here? Were you not paying attention, son? What what happened here? C plus? Well, I hope you'll you'll try a little harder next time. Hands back to report card. Imagine the kids. Wow, five A's. Not not a single word about the A's. All he could see was the one negative thing. You, you know what you know what happens when you grow up like that? You come into the church and, and you think God is like that. Five A's. Oh, I got to C. And we consciously, maybe self-consciously, maybe unconsciously, think I've got to work hard if, if God's going to be happy. And I, I just see this everywhere. I, I see it in sports. I, I see some of these dads in baseball with their sons, and I'm like, man, it's just a game. They're eight years old. Good night. This isn't the major league. What are you doing to the kid? You know? Or they, or they play an instrument and you can just be like, practice harder, get it right. You know, just boom, boom, boom. And it gets, man, I'll, I'll, I'll never measure up. And then we come into church and I think many of us, and I, I'm speaking for my, we can think that God is like that. And grace is just too good to be true. I mean, we read about it, we study it. 
we we confess it, but where we actually live, I wonder if we really do say, it's all of grace. It doesn't matter if I struck out every time I went up the bat. God loves me. It doesn't matter if I always sing off-key. God loves me. It doesn't matter if I flunk out of college. God loves me. He does. You believe it? He does. I really do pray that you can... God loves you for who you are. He does. You say, you don't understand. I'm a miserable failure. I'm a sinner. I know you're a sinner. You don't have to tell me. I don't need the dirty deeds. I know you're a sinner. God loves you in Christ. I wish, I really do wish that the Holy Spirit would just fall. And I could just bless you. And I could just say, God loves you. He does. He rejoices over you. This is my son. Yes, he flunked out of college. But he's got other gifts. I love him. He's a great kid. God loves you. We need to understand that. Only grace can do that. Grace will set us free from religion and earning God's approval. Grace will set us free from pride. I think this is the flip side. On the one hand, we can feel like I'm no good. I'm miserable. On the other side, we can feel like I'm really something. <laughs> I got flunked out of college. Magnum cum laude. Yeah. Yeah. When I get when I get my robe, it's got stripes on it. I'm a big deal. You know, we don't say that out loud, you know, but as we're looking down our noses, it says, I'm a big deal. You know what? Other people recognize that. Remember the movie Pollyanna? I don't know if some of you watch that. You know, you don't watch that, but you know, you got the influential people in the city and they're, they're going to give gifts to the poor. What's, what I find is really interesting, it's all the servants who put together the gifts and do all the hard work. But all the servants do that. They put together the gifts to the poor and then all the influential people in the city, they grab the gifts and, and they pass them out and they do it with a real air of, aren't I something? And you know, they pass out the gifts and, and I love the one scene where they give the guy the jam or whatever it was. I don't remember. It's been a while. And he, and he takes it and he opens it up and he says, do gooders. And he throws it in the garbage. You know what that indicates? I can sense the arrogance a mile away. Don't do me any favors. Get pride just spoils everything. Any ministry that we do, if we do it in pride, people don't want anything to do with it. They can tell if we're genuine or if we just really think that we are something. Grace. What does grace do? Grace reminds us, if I do anything good, if anything good comes out of me, it's God because of the grace of God. Let's remember that anything, if God uses anything in our ministry, it's solely because of grace. Because we're all a mess. We're a mess. Let's just set ourselves free. We're all a mess. We don't have to measure up, okay? We're all a mess. Okay? You know, it might be, we, should, we, should, we should have a Sunday. This is came to me. I don't, maybe this is a terrible idea. We should have a Sunday, messed up Sunday, you know. And, and on that Sunday, nobody comes in a tie. You know, we should say no ties allowed. Take off your suit jacket, ripped up jeans, T-shirts, and, and let's, let's just come. No showers. Let's just come as a mess. And just admit we're a mess. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're a mess and just say, but by the grace of God, He looks at us as though we got 
three-piece suits on and we got it all together. You know, one of the blessings of being converted later in life is you know you're a sinner. I became a Christian when I was 20. I was doing drugs, living a life of immorality. God, by His grace, set me free. I know it was His grace. I know where I would be today without that. One of the good things about a conversion like that is, is you know it's by the grace of God that I stand here today. I know it. I mean, if you knew who I was, every single Sunday when I walked up from there to the pulpit to preach, you'd be like, man, I can't believe he's a pastor. Talk about grace. Wow. I, I know I'm a trophy of grace. Now, now some of you, you know, you, you weren't a member of Hell's Angels. You know, you, you, you didn't rob 7-Elevens. Uh, you, you grew up in a Christian home. You became a Christian at a very young age. And you look back on the sin in your life and you think, yeah, I remember when I was six and my mom told me to go to bed, but I got out my video game and I, and I was playing video games in bed for half an hour. and I, I wasn't supposed to do that. This rebellious, sinful kid. Uh, you, you need to realize if, if, if that's your testimony, grace. Okay, you kids who are growing up in church, what I want you to see is that you are experiencing tremendous, tremendous grace. If you pray in your home and, and read the Bible, you need to understand that you are so blessed. How many of us wish that when we were growing up, we would have been sitting at the kitchen table, Dad reading the Bible and then praying for us. How many, would give, how many of us would give our right arm if we could go back and that would happen? But we didn't have that. If you got that, realize you were blessed with grace at a young age. Some of us, God bestowed His grace upon us at 20. Some of, some of us even later. So if you got it at 3, you need to realize you got it earlier. God saved you from a lot more. So don't look upon others. You know, you think, wow, they really got it messed up. Realize that if you're growing up like that, you are tremendously blessed with the grace of God. That should cause you to be more humble that you didn't fall into that kind of lifestyle. Thank God for that. And how about God's grace setting us free from legalism? And we we can slip into this so easily. Legalism. And we're going to a church one Sunday. Every single woman in the church had on a skirt and it was a long skirt down to the floor. I remember talking to a guy about that and and I said, yeah, I visited this church. Every single lady in there, I was watching, they all had skirts on and they were all down to the floor. And he said, well, maybe it was just a coincidence. And, and I said, you're not married, are you? He said, no. I, I said, yeah, you, you don't understand. That was not a coincidence. Okay. Okay, disclaimer, okay, I have nothing against skirts. Okay, love skirts, okay? Wear, wear your skirts. But there was a subtle message in that church. They got the memo. You, you, you got to toe the line. Okay? Maybe I missed a verse that requires, thou shalt wear skirts. Um, but I, I just, I see that as dangerous. I, I really do. 
it's a good church, but I'm like, man, there, there is a subtle message. You've you got to live in a certain way. And as soon as you start giving qualifications that, be go, that go beyond the Bible, it's just like I can, I can see the yoke. And you want, that's a yoke. Somebody get rid of that yoke. Somebody toss that in the trash can. That, that's a yoke. That, that is a burden. And we, we can do that. It can be so subtle. Good churches. You know, it can come in a thousand different ways. If you're really a good Christian, you educate this way. If you're really a good Christian mom, you know, you, you, you don't bottle feed, you breastfeed. If you're really, I mean, we could just go right down the list. Some things that seem funny. But the message, if you're really a good Christian, you'll never eat that. If you're really a good Christian, I mean, it's just, I see it. I see it. I'm all for holiness. Don't misunderstand. I know, and I give the benefit of the doubt. Some people are trying to live holy, but I just, I want to say, but be careful. Be careful. I find it very easy to cross that line. You say, well, what about the other side? Okay, let's be fair, okay? The other side, there's legal, the other side, antinomianism. Antinomianism. There's another big word. That might be bigger than justification. Just simply means lawlessness. So Paul addressed this in, in Romans uh, 6 when he said, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Oh, we're saved by grace. God accepts us. Regardless of what we do, then hey, we'll just sin. But here's what it is. The lawless person needs grace as well. And we tend to think, no, they're the ones that need rules. They need grace. If they're lawless, it's because they don't understand grace. They don't understand how much they've been forgiven. Otherwise, they would never sin. So to that kind of person, I want to explain the Gospel more. I want to say you don't understand your debt. A while ago, I gave you, I gave you an illustration by Martin Lloyd-Jones. and he, he said, if you're, if you're away on vacation and your friend is watching your house and a bill comes and he says, you know, you know, a bill came the other day and you weren't here and I thought I'd just take care of it for you. He said, you don't know whether to say thank you or to fall down and kiss his feet until you know what the debt was. You know, if the debt was just postage due, you're just like, well, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. But if the debt was, if the bill was from the IRS and they caught up with you 20 years of back taxes and it was tens of thousands of dollars and he pays for it, you, just don't, you don't just say, thank you very much. You say, you paid that? <laughs> wait, wait a second. You, you took care of that bill? The whole thing? The whole thing. The whole thing. I have no more trouble with the IRS. Yes, you have no more trouble with the IRS. I just wanted to bless you. You're like, oh, thank you so much. Let me ask you this question. How are you going to treat that person in the coming years? I mean, are you just going to like want to bless them and kiss them every time you see them? Or are you going to want to snub them? I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, when they don't have to you, I mean, that's going to change the relationship because you're just blown away by their love for you and their, and their generosity. See, when we understand God's love and God's generosity, when we understand what He has done for us in Christ, grace will never become a license for sin. Grace will become that thing which utterly transforms our lives. We need grace. You know, I was asking the elders this weekend, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll close with this. I was asking the elders this weekend, 
what what does it take for people in the church to say, you know what? I'm going to leave the comfort of America. I'm going to go to the mission field. I'm going to go to the Middle East and I'm going to preach the gospel to Muslims. I'm going to risk my life. What what motivates a person to do that? Seriously, what motivates somebody to do that? Is it because the pastor stood up on Sunday and said, "Hey, come on now, we got we got a great commission to fulfill." God said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, now, come on. We need to start being obedient. Come on. And then someone said, okay, I'll go. You know, someone's got to go to the Middle East. All right, I'll go. You know what? If someone's going to go to the Middle East, risk their life, and say, I'm going to leave the comfort of America, I'm going to struggle, I'm going to do whatever. The only, the only thing that will do that is grace the grace and the Spirit of God that says this is what I want to do for God. I don't care how rough it is, how dangerous, how hard it is. I'm going to do it. Because I have been the recipient of grace. That's what does it. So I just, I pray that we understand that everything we are, everything we have is because of the grace of God. And I pray that that will compel us that will com- catapult us to worship God, serve God, do whatever God calls us to do because we want to, because it's a joy, because it's a privilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace of the Gospel and I pray that it does not just register in our heads but in our hearts so that it transforms our lives so that we live free lives, free from religion, free from pride, free from legalism, free from lawlessness, free to love You and serve You with with great joy and great gusto. Oh, Father, may that characterize this church. May we be the Grace Church. In Jesus' name, Amen.